Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. I'm going to share, I'm going to kind of expand a little bit. I've done this, uh, did this, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, whenever, where I kind of expand on Wednesday night on something I talked about on Sunday, so you guys kind of get a bonus sermon. And, uh, but man, I was really, this thing just rose up inside of me. I don't know if it's going to come out of me the way I feel it on the inside. Uh, I didn't write it out, but it just kind of came to me in a flood uh, yesterday, two days ago, actually. I just had, didn't have a chance to, to type it out. I was driving when it came to me, and I made some voice memos and things, which I know you're not supposed to even touch your phone these days, but what is this, Russia? Anyway, I'll start with this. In January of this year, a man by the name of Thomas Phillips died. I don't know how, if any of you are familiar with that name. He was an extraordinarily successful businessman. He was a director of Digital Equipment Corporation uh, in early days of uh, computer manufacturing. John Hancock, he was a director of John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company, Knight Ritter Incorporated, uh, state research and management company. He was a trustee of Gordon College. He was a trustee of Massachusetts General Hospital and an honorary trustee of Northeastern, Northeastern University and a number of other things. But he's probably most famous for having been the CEO of Raytheon Corporation, one of the nation's largest defense contractors. They made their, uh, their really, they made their name and their money in guided missile technology. Uh, they had several uh, well-known missiles, probably most famously the Patriot missile, which is still in use, uh, came out of Raytheon under his direction. He took it over as a young man. There was a split in the company when he was working for it as a young engineer. I'm talking in his 20s. And kind of in a desperate move, they put him in charge of this company, asked him to lead it, and he led it from a half billion dollars in total assets to a multi-billion dollar company. By the time he retired, their assets were well over $10 billion. Uh, Super successful. And, And, you know, college boards, hospitals, all these organizations wanted him on their board because he had such vision and such a mind for business and a way of inspiring people. They asked him at one point, I don't know if it was at his retirement. This was sometime back in the 80s, though. They asked him what his greatest accomplishment was. Here was his answer. I led Chuck Colson to the Lord. Remember Chuck Coulson? For those of uh, the younger ones in the uh, congregation tonight, Chuck Coulson was special counsel to, to President Nixon. And he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He would destroy anybody. He would run them down. He would get dirt on them. He was part of, uh, he was involved in, in Nixon's dirty tricks campaign, the enemies list, all this stuff. He famously said one time that he would uh, walk over his own grandmother uh, to do something for the president or see, to see Nixon reelected. And he was instrumental in Nixon's reelection. Unfortunately, being instrumental in Nixon's reelection meant being complicit in the whole Watergate debacle. He wasn't involved in the break in, but he was involved in some uh, uh, defamation of uh, Dan- uh, Daniel Ellsberg stuff. Not going to go into the whole Watergate stuff. And I'm not an expert on that anyway. But. Colson was a figure. He was a headline figure back in the days of Watergate. And he was a hated man by politicians. 
in Washington. People on the other side of the aisle hated Colson worse than they hated Nixon sometimes. Uh, they, were, they, he was just a, they saw him as creepy, underhanded, untrustworthy, but they also were afraid of him because he was brilliant, brilliant legal mind, and he knew how to bring that mind to bear on all sorts of problems uh, as he saw them working for Nixon. And uh, after, uh, after Nixon was forced to resign, Colson returned to private practice. He had a lucrative law practice. And uh, one, of the, one of his clients was Raytheon. And he went to visit Raytheon and to meet with a couple of their executives. And while they were there, the number two guy at Raytheon said, Tom Phillips wants to speak to you. And he had known Tom, but they weren't close. They, they, they knew one another. They were aware of each other. And, of course, here's, Colson's been in the headlines for the last uh, year and a half or whatever. And so they met. And uh, it's one of these stories that you, you, you kind of, if you have any sense of any, uh, any heart for evangelism, it's the kind of story you want to happen to you. They're sitting in his office, and Colson notices there's something different about this guy. He's still the same sharp, athletic-looking guy. He still has a handle on the business. He's still driven, but he's, there's this serenity about him. And he had heard, before he went in to meet him, the number two guy says, hey, just to warn you, Phillips has had some sort of religious experience. And so, uh, so he's waiting for Phillips to say something to him, and he doesn't. Till finally... Uh, Colson, because he's curious, says, so I understand you uh, got real involved in religion or something. And Phillips just tells him, I actually, I've met Jesus Christ and I invited him into my life and it's changed my life. And starts to share the gospel with him. And makes Colson uncomfortable, but they arrange to meet later. And when they meet later, he reads to him out of mere Christianity and gives him a copy of the book and they talk about it, and he actually invites Colson to pray at that moment. This is at, this is at Phillips' house. And Colson's this close, and he doesn't. He says, I'm just not ready. He says, that's fine, but read that book, and read the book of John. He says he, know, he made it as far as his car. He's out in the driveway, and suddenly he starts weeping. Colson just starts crying. He said his main concern at that point was that Tom and his wife would come out to see what was wrong with him because he was crying so loud. But they didn't. But he reads this book, and I want to read to you the passage that gripped him. First, I want to tell you this. This is the book. This is his account. It's called Born Again. This is his first book uh, recounting his Watergate days, his conversion experience, his prison time. You know, he went to prison for his involvement in Watergate. And at the end of this book, it's interesting, he's out of prison, and four or five days later, he goes back to visit some of the people he'd had Christian fellowship with in the prison, and that's when he realized, when he first went back to visit, this is what I'm called to do. And of course, went on to found Prison Fellowship, the premier prison ministry organization in the world. He went on to be one of the great apologists of the 20th century, one of the great defenders of the faith in our culture. Breakpoint, uh, maybe you've heard those little radio spots. He, uh, he started that and hosted it for years. Tremendous man of God. I can't begin. I've never seen the stats. I have no idea how many thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands came to Christ through Colson's ministry. Certainly many more, including myself, had their faith strengthened by Colson's ministry. 
he, he, really, he really was a giant uh, as, a, as a Christian figure in our day. And of course, he went home to be with the Lord uh, several years ago. But this was the point, in, throughout this book, I, I'm recommending this book. This is an oldie but goodie. It is one of those books that I think every believer ought to read. There's so much good stuff in here. And, uh, but here is the passage that gripped Lewis, and it gripped him so much that he refers to it again and again and again in this book. And I didn't have it dog-eared. I thought I did. Sorry. Just give me a second. Did I write down what page I had this on? Here we go. And immortality makes this. This is uh, from, from Mere Christianity, where... C.S. Lewis is talking about the difference believing in immortality makes, if you believe that we really are going to live forever. Immortality makes this other difference, which, by the way, has a connection with the difference between totalitarianism and democracy. If individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization, which may last for a thousand years, is more important than an individual. But... If Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important. For he is everlasting, and the life of a state or a civilization compared with this is only a moment. He echoes that, by the way, another plug for Lewis. You know I love mere Christianity. There's an essay uh, it's only, I don't know, nine or ten pages long, called The Weight of Glory, where he comes back to that point near the end of the essay, where uh, he said, you know, the great ideas that men fight for and fight over are, you know, in politics. When, when, when you're talking about political fights, we're talking about our civilization, our society. But societies don't last forever. A really successful society might last a thousand years, might last two thousand years, but it is going away. But your neighbor who you curse and badmouth and wish bad things upon, he's going to live forever, one way or another. Now, what does that have to do with what we were talking about Sunday? I'll just remind you of this without giving you any context. It's just a good thing to remember. Without vision, the people perish. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I don't know how, you, uh, how you've read that, book, read that verse, but a lot of times I have presented it, uh, presented it and thought about it in terms of uh, if, if you have a lowly, what, what society would look on as a lowly profession. You're not a CEO. Okay? You're not a professor. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. Maybe you mow lawns, like I do on the side. Maybe you mop floors. Maybe you peel potatoes. And Paul, as we look at this and say, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You take whatever meager talent and position you have and remember you're doing it for God. And that's absolutely true. But we need to think about it the other way around, too that the successful people, if they are not channeling this success toward Christian evangelism, they are not doing their job as unto the Lord. We, you know, we, we get a little glimpse in that born-again book of, of, of Tom Phillips' testimony 
where he talked about how empty his life was. And Colson's like, what are you talking about? You're making a quarter million dollars a year, and this is back in the early 70s when that was a lot of money. Nobody thinks that's a lot of money now besides me. All right. You're driving a Mercedes. You live in this gorgeous house. You're, you're a powerful man. You're the, you're the head of the biggest business in this state. He says, yeah, and I was lost. I just lacked meaning. I lacked direction. And, this, and Colson's like, he just couldn't get his head around it. Except that he realized he was shaken because he was in the exact same position. And when Phillips uh, would share, he shared it uh, with several people over the years that, yeah, he loved doing things for the business. He knew he had a talent. He certainly had a talent for making money and building businesses. But what he really cherished were the prayer breakfasts that he organized. Uh, He had this uh, first Tuesday meeting where he gathered other business leaders and communities and personally mentored people, leading them into a deeper walk with Christ. And these are the things that meant things to him. And because he was open about his faith, somebody knew enough. Well, actually, people, Christians have a way of finding one another, don't they? As soon as uh, Tom Phillips had heard that Colson prayed, because Colson went away for a week and, and read and he thought and he just got desperate and he just prayed the only thing he knew how to pray, pray was, Lord Jesus, I believe in you, come into my life. And things changed for him. And, as soon, and so he wrote Phillips a letter telling him what he did. Phillips immediately called somebody who lived closer to Chuck and said, go visit Chuck. And this guy introduced him to some other people. And one of the most fascinating things you'll read in this book, because I know you're all going to read it, is how he was invited to meet a senator named Harold Hughes, who was a Democrat, a liberal, uh, and a big, tough guy. And he hated Colson. Politically, he hated Colson. And he said, and this uh, guy who's introducing him, who's going to introduce him, tells him, you really need to meet Senator Hughes. He goes, oh, Hughes is, I'm the last person Hughes is going to meet. He hates my guts. He goes, you'd be surprised. And they go to this little meeting at his house. He gives his testimony, and Hughes just says, it's all I need to hear. You've accepted Jesus, and he's forgiven you, so so do I. I'll defend you, I'll stand with you, and I'll trust you with anything I own. And they all get down on the floor and pray. Like, this kind of fellowship, this kind of transformation, that's what changes societies. But it's not societies we're ultimately after, is it? It's people. Because societies aren't going to last forever. And I think about this. And what got me thinking, I was listening to somebody else, talking about the... The, the, rate, the suicide rate and how it's no, it's no less among rich, successful people than it is among poor, unsuccessful people. I don't know if it's any more, but it's, surprise, it's surprising how many people at the top of their game kill themselves because they, re, they woke up one, realize, one day and realized, I got everything I set out to get and it didn't make me happy. And some people channel that in, well, I'm going to do something that lasts then. I'm going to build a building with my name on it. I'm going to leave this legacy for my children. Folks, no matter how successful you are, no matter how loved you are in this life, you could receive a key to the city. You could be honored by the state, by the nation, by the world. But most of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, 200 years from now, max, nobody will know who we are. And the people who build hospitals and schools, they remember the name. 
One of my favorite books is The Right Stuff. It tells the story of the Mercury astronauts and how they were overnight the most famous men in America for a brief window of time. Life magazine was dedicated every issue to telling the astronaut stories. So everybody was on a first-name basis with the Mercury 7 astronauts. I could name all of them right now. I could name all of them and all of their wives right now. But the most famous one, anybody who knows? Remember who, 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 wrote, who was the most famous astronaut of the Mercury 7? John Glenn. He was the guy who took the first orbital flight for the United States and came back to one of the largest ticker tape parades. He was just the, he was, uh, in Wolf's words, the most recognizable American in the world outside of possibly President Kennedy. And, but they were all famous. I mean, they were headlines. Every time they took a flight, there were ticker tape parades. And then... In just the course of a year, year and a half, the second group of astronauts comes in, and they're being celebrated, but it's not like it was. And at the, at the very end of the book, it says, I'm not going to quote it right, although I should be able to as many times as I read it, it says that at least Glenn would be remembered. It would have been more impossible for his uh, comrades to think the day might come when their name was mentioned, and someone would say, Oh, yes. Now, which one was he? And you drive by a building that's named after somebody. wonder who that is. It doesn't last. And I think people realize, what am I doing? If I'm doing it for me, I'm going to die. So I'm going to do it. I'll do it for society. I want to leave the world a better place. And we talk about societies and civilizations dying off. We know ultimately, just from the scientific viewpoint, this earth is going to die. And someday, someday it's all going to, the whole universe is going to fizzle out, right? What's ultimately, what is this whole thing about? You want to be remembered for a few generations? And I think it just hits some people. What do I care? What do I care if I remember for future generations? I'm not going to be around for that. And so some of them go the other way. <laughs> hey, I'm just going to grab all the fun and all the, uh, go for the gusto. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. We've got to have a vision. What are we about? And vision has to be more. It has to be more, people. And you know this. And this is where we're kind of go back to what we were talking about on Sunday. It has to be more than God loves me, and he wants me healthy, he wants me wealthy, he wants me successful, and I get to go to heaven when I die. That's not what the Christian life is. Do all to the glory of God. You cannot take your good name in society with you. You can't take your accolades, your awards, your recognition, your buildings. None of that stuff. That's wood, hay, and stubble. A lot of times we talk, our works will be tried by fire. And we think of the stuff going up in smoke as, again, rank sin. That's not what he's talking about. It's all the stuff that wasn't for the kingdom of lasting value. There is only one thing you can do of lasting value, and that is take one person with you. If you, can get, if you can lead one person to the Lord, do you understand you have saved an eternity for someone? If every believer would win one person to the Lord every year, including the people who get saved this year. Do you know how quickly this world would be saved? 
Now, I get it. It's not as simple as that. There are people that are hard to reach, but think about your neighbors. And when's the last time you tried? When's the last time you had a conversation with somebody? And, it's, and we need to pray. We absolutely need to pray. But we've got to be sharing the gospel because people's lives, eternities are at stake. Our earthly legacy does not matter. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to leave the world a better place, to make an improvement in society that lasts beyond your earthly life. I'm saying it ain't going to count in eternity. Look at what God has given you, you individually, in terms of talent, energy, and resources, and ask yourself honestly if you are doing all you can to justify his generosity. What are you doing to bring one more person into the kingdom? It's all you can take with you. I know a guy, and this, this again is the kind of thing I alluded to on Sunday. And this isn't a made-up guy. This is a guy I know. Uh, dedicated Christian. Uh, a little older than me. Hard worker. Fairly successful. He's not, a, he's not rolling in it, but he's just a good, solid guy. Uh, and two grown kids. And uh, I know one of his kids is saved. His daughter is saved. I'm not sure about his son but they are solid, solid citizens with good jobs. And I know less about the son, more about the daughter. I know she married a guy who was, uh, if he's a believer, he's never given me any reason to believe he's a believer. Good guy. Never went to church. No interest, no real interest in the things of God. And I would hear this guy, my friend, who's, you know, so this would be his son-in-law, say, well, you know, he ain't much for church and religion, but I got to tell you, he sure takes good care of his family. Now, a couple things. First thing, I'm not saying it's this guy's fault. It's not his fault that his daughter married somebody who wasn't in love with Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there was something, and there's certainly nothing wrong with being glad that your daughter's being taken care of by a hard-working family man. It's just something about the whole tone indicates some crazy priorities for a Christian. Almost like, well, I wish he were a Christian or I wish he were a dedicated believer, but the main thing is, see what I'm saying? Now, I would not. You know, Paul says, you know, if a believer doesn't take care of his family, in that regard, he's worse than an infidel. It's not saying you're going to go to hell for that, you understand. It's saying that these things should, it should not be one or the other. Yes, we should take care of our families. Yes, we should love one another. Yes, we should cheer each other on, support one another. Uh, but we have to do it as unto the Lord. Because what we're aiming for, the end game here, is always eternal life. The people that we're influencing and leading, where are we leading them to? Say, well, boy, yeah, what a, he taught so many people how to be a success at this, be happier, make more money, and then what? 
It's kind of like, you know, this the American version of, well, we go, we build these wells, we take clothes, we feed all these people in other nations, and then they die and go to hell. And I'm certainly not saying this. Good heavens, I hope you don't hear me say, saying this, because what I'm not saying is that if you are successful or your children are successful in terms of your secular endeavors, even if you're wildly successful, that doesn't mean your priorities are out of whack. It doesn't mean you've compromised. That's, it's not about whether you are successful and rich. I believe, like any good father, God would prefer us to be successful and rich. Successful and rich and dedicated to pursuing the kingdom of God. If our success and our riches are going to keep us from that, as a good father, I believe he has every right and will interfere with our success and riches. I'll close with this uh, scripture in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat Drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Notice that this rich fool did not say, There's nothing in here that indicates he exploited anybody that he abused his workers. Nothing in there that suggests he was an unfair employer or master. The only thing that gets him the moniker fool is that he just kept piling up the stuff to enjoy and not investing it in the kingdom of God. I used that passage as the centerpiece of a brief series on giving on finances, but I hope you know that it goes far beyond money. Anything that we have, if our focus is, what can I do so that I get the maximum enjoyment and pleasure out of this, rather than thinking, is there some way I can invest this talent, this resource, this time, whatever, into the kingdom, is very, very short-sighted. We absolutely should enjoy this life But the enjoyment is not our end. It's not our goal. We have got all eternity to enjoy each other, to enjoy life, to enjoy Jesus. And joy is absolutely, I think, the center. It ought to be at the center of of, of who we are. It ought to define us. Okay? It ought to characterize us. I'll put it that way. Joy ought to characterize the believer. But that joy comes from exactly what we were talking about. Even people who pursue and succeed find themselves joyless because there is no center. 
We've got that core, that meaning, that purpose, and that's where the joy comes from, regardless of our external circumstances, which is exactly where we wind up with Paul in Philippians. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I can, it, it, I can rejoice in every situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know, except for maybe some stories, uh, that there's nothing you heard tonight that you didn't already know. Theologically, doctrinally, you didn't learn anything tonight, probably. Uh, it wasn't my heart to educate you tonight. It wasn't my heart to teach you tonight. This was a preaching. This was an exhortation. Obviously, it's something that's been burning in my heart uh, for, uh, for a number of days now. Just this idea of what are we about? Live the gospel Preach the gospel. We cannot live life for ourselves and claim, and claim Jesus and heaven as a fringe benefit. He really does. We just sang it. Jesus at the center of it all. The center of my family. The center of my church. The center of my job. Center of my desires. You know, people say, well, you can't be so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. I think we have a long way to go before we've got to worry about that. If we start getting too heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, I'll rein us back in, okay? But I think, frankly, we're too earthly minded, aren't we? That's what Paul was talking about. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 17, you can go back and read that passage again. But right now, speaking to a uh, a congregation of believers. I think. I think I recognize everybody in here. If you've never prayed that prayer that Chuck, I talked about Chuck Colson praying, pray it tonight. Don't, don't waste another day. I mean, get, get on the track of good works that God has for you. Uh, everybody else, I think just, uh, man, would you just join me in praying for a fresh, for a revival of that evangelistic spirit. In fact, two things I'm going to pray. I'm going to lay hands on you. What I want to pray, though, I'm, I'm looking back, you know, when the, when the uh, disciples were beaten for preaching the gospel in the temple, and they went back to their company and they prayed. And they praised the Lord and the place shook. Remember what they prayed, though? Not protect us from beatings, not give us favor. Give us boldness. So let's pray for that. Pray for a passion to pray, three things. Let's pray for passion to see the lost saved. Let's pray for opportunities to share the gospel of salvation. And then let's pray for the boldness to share it. Fair enough? Are you with me in this prayer? You don't need to repeat after me. You do need to say amen. Agree with your mouth. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the stories and the lives of men like Tom Phillips and Chuck Colson. Thank you for how you have interconnected these men down through the ages to bring one person to salvation that will bring thousands of people to salvation. Oh, Lord, let us catch a vision. Not so that we can be the next Billy Graham, Father, but that's just so we might bring the next Billy Graham to know you. 
let us never forget that the one person we share with, share with might be the next world changer. Let us never forget that that one person we share with might escape hell because we were bold enough to share with them. So Father, fill us with that passion. We want your heart on this. We want to get to the point where we want to see them saved as badly as you want to see them saved. And when we experience that desire, Lord God, open our eyes to the opportunities that surround us. And if we are not surrounded by opportunities, Lord, I boldly ask now that you surround us with opportunities. Bring us across the paths of people who do not yet know you as God, as Father, and as Jesus, as Lord and Savior, but who have something, know there's something. Send hungry people to us, Lord, even if they don't yet know what they're hungry for. And give us the boldness to seize those opportunities. And it goes without saying, Lord, but we're going to say it anyway because you've commanded. Actually, it doesn't go without saying. You've commanded us to ask it. Wisdom. You give us the boldness to speak and the wisdom to speak the right things. We pray, Lord, that when we open our mouths in those situations, that it's your words, it's your heart that's flowing into that room and into that conversation. Use us. Use us as a church, but use us as individuals and as families too. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for equipping us with all of this, Lord God. And let us truly live the gospel, preach the gospel of salvation. Let us not be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.